friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady. You can also call me Marg. This is episode two of The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. If you missed last week's episode, I explained how the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers formed, got drunk, tried to develop professionally, and partially as a means to meet ladies, in 1922 selected their very first list predicting the stars of the future, the Wampus Baby Stars. Go back and listen to learn all about Bessie Love, Helen Ferguson, Colleen Moore, Lois Wilson, Catherine McGuire, and poor Mary and I. This episode will feature the rest of the first 13 baby stars. Jacqueline Logan, Lila Lee, Mary Philbin, Pauline Stark, Claire Windsor, and Louise Lorraine. But before we begin with the Wampus babies themselves, I just want to pop in on the Wampus, see what they're up to. After releasing their initial list of baby stars in March 1922, the Wampus did have some less lady-focused work to do. There was a threat looming over the still-young film industry, one that would take years to come to its full fruition. Censorship. Now, I don't want to get anybody too riled up. Or maybe I do. But if you find shadows of today's book banning, don't teach children about racism, general societal landscape in this next quote. Well, good. At a Wampus dinner in May, film producer William DeMille, brother of Cecil B., said the following. The fundamental evil of censorship is that the censors get off on the wrong foot. They do not say, Thou shalt not say a certain thing, but they say, Thou shalt not even talk about an evil. That is the substitution for a necessary principle of law, of a weak, ungrounded, tyrannical rule. The censors he was speaking about at that time were all over the country, the world even. And each censorship board had its own set of standards of what could be shown, and yes, what topics could even be touched on, and what actors could be seen on screen. Sending a film out to the theaters was a real gamble. What was okay in New York might be banned in Florida, what's okay in Florida might be banned in Minnesota, and so forth. Moreover, certain demographics were becoming increasingly horrified by what they saw as a moral failing in Hollywood, and thus, were ever more sensitive to where they would draw their censorship lines. Since every film rejected by censorship boards meant that the studio lost money, Hollywood needed to take action. There were other incidents, but one of the most extreme events in Hollywood during this exact period was the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle scandal. Accused of manslaughter in September 1921 after the death of Virginia Rappe, his films were almost immediately banned everywhere, and those waiting to be released were shelved. Morality clauses suddenly became standard in Starr's contracts, 
And even though he was eventually acquitted in March 1922, after three trials, Arbuckle's life and career would never recover. Many in the public not only saw the Arbuckle affair as evidence that Hollywood was a place of debauchery and sin, they also saw the movies being produced as reflective of that degradation. Is it a Hollywood movie or a Sodom and Gomorrah movie? Am I right? 1922 was the year William H. Hayes arrived in Hollywood, becoming the chairman of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. He wasn't a producer. He was the Postmaster General. He was brought in from the outside to add an air of respectability in Hollywood's attempt to self-censor. And he was given a wide-ranging authority to clean up this town. This was a cost-saving enterprise, as films deemed inappropriate by censorship boards in various local jurisdictions were really just wastes of money. The hope, of course, was that if the studios could produce their own acceptable films and acceptable film stars, nothing would be left to chance. Hayes would eventually become instrumental in some seismic changes to the film industry. But he spent most of his first year doing evaluations and pontificating. As the October 21st, 1922 edition of Camera put it, So far, Will Hayes' dictatorship has consisted in dictating speeches. But um, So no one was too worried, least of all the Wampus, who frankly welcomed their new morality overlord with pretty open arms. In November, they issued Hayes with an honorary membership to their organization. Then Wampus President Arch Reeves said, Our business is to sell specific pictures to the public. Your business is to sell the entire motion picture industry to the public. So we feel like you should be a member of the Western Motion Picture Advertisers. How the Wampus would work for and against the censorship to come is for another day. For now, we should get back to the task at hand. So in no particular order, save for the narrative I seek to construct... Allow me to tell you the stories of the rest of the 1922 Wampus Baby Stars. Jacqueline Logan Jacqueline was 20-ish, birth dates vary, when she was named a Wampus Baby. It's hard to tell in black and white photos, but contemporary reports often rave about her auburn hair and green eyes. Feel free to say Jacqueline to the tune of Jolene by Dolly Parton. I know I did. Jackie, as she was often called, was a strong candidate as far as the Wampus were concerned, as she already had some buzz as a Ziegfeld girl. Helmed by Florenz Ziegfeld, his Follies were a series of spectacular theatrical reviews, a mix of comedy, dance, music, and a chorus line packed full of beautiful young ladies in outrageous costumes. Ziegfeld girls were a type, like, you might see some hair color variation, but that's about it. They were all even supposed to have the same measurements. More than the uniform look, these showgirls also had to have a certain lack of inhibition, a particular way of moving, and a drive within themselves. You'd really have to in order to go through this extremely objectifying process and just keep going. 
It said that Ziegfeld personally oversaw the auditions of 15,000 women a year and only selected 3,000 ever during the entire run of the Follies between 1907 and 1931. So basically, whenever one of these girls made the move to Hollywood, while it wasn't a sure thing that she would have a career, it could prove as a real feather in her cap. Other notable ex-Ziegfeld girls included Paulette Goddard, Barbara Stanwyck, Louise Brooks, Marion Davies, Joan Blondell, and Billy Burke, who, yes, played Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. But back to Jackie. After being named a Wampus Baby, she appeared in a number of non-event pictures, landing her first official starring role in 1924. But that still failed to make her a star star. In fact, when she landed the role of Mary Magdalene in Cecil B. DeMille's 1927 epic The King of Kings, people were like, Her? This is an excerpt from Picture Play magazine from January 1927, and this is five years after she was named a Wampus star. It demonstrates the confusion well. She isn't in the least a new actress, nor an unknown one. For years, her name has been seen in electric lights over motion picture theaters throughout the country, to no particular purpose. The fact that Jackie has been featured in every picture of her career means little or nothing, for she has appeared only in program pictures, in uninteresting roles. A pretty damning take. The picture play piece goes on to call the role the opportunity of the year, and considering what a massive success The King of Kings was, it isn't an inaccurate statement. It would have been difficult to match a film like that, though, and while she was rumored as the lead of another DeMille epic, the film never came to fruition. As sound films took over in Hollywood, Jackie made her leave. There was another act left in her film career, however. After her objectification on the Ziegfeld stage, and the highlight of her film work being a big flashy epic, Jackie was eager to show her more creative depths. After moving to England, she actually became the first woman to write and direct for British National Pictures. It was what's referred to as a quota quickie, as in a film made quickly and cheaply in the United Kingdom to count as UK content, so it probably wasn't very good. But fuck it, she did it when people weren't generally letting ladies do such things, and that's awesome. The Wampa's success verdict was more middling. Lila Lee Lila Lee, isn't that the most silent film star name you've ever heard? She was born Augusta Wilhelmina Frederica Apple. And frankly, though I think Augusta Apple would make a great star name, she changed it. When the Wampus list was announced, Lila would have been among the youngest of all the baby stars at just 17. There were persistent rumors that she was older, but I believe 1905 is an accurate birth year. It's funny, because the public knew her first as a child star, first on vaudeville stages and then early silence. Rather than understanding that they had seen her as an actual child, people seemed to just vaguely remember knowing her name way back then. Once given the nickname Cuddles, she had been a cherubic teen performer. Being named a baby star was, somewhat ironically, part of a publicity campaign to launch Lila into adult stardom. Other tactics included magazine spreads showing before and after pictures, Lila as cuddles, Lila as the woman she'd become. We still see this stuff regularly. You know, Disney stars all grown up. And yes, it's as gross today as it was back then. Honestly, I think this 
she's an adult now, go ahead and sexualize her campaign, is what caused some of the later rumors about her age to grow in strength. Eventually, Lila was so annoyed about being called older than she was that she reportedly started carrying around an affidavit from her mother, swearing on the 1905 birth date. The Wampus's prediction almost immediately came true when Blood and Sand was released in August 1922, which was just months after she was named a baby star. There she was opposite Rudolph Valentino in one of the biggest films of the year. And throughout the rest of the decade, she worked steadily, though sadly many of her films are now lost. Though she did make that rare transition into the talkies, Lila's personal life began to overshadow her career. A troubled marriage to actor James Kirkwood, a troubled romance to director John Farrow, father of Mia, health scares, time spent in a sanatorium, a reliance on alcohol, and a final sad scandal in 1936 from which her public image would never recover. She had begun a relationship with a car salesman named Reed Russell, who died from a gunshot wound while lying in a hammock in the yard of the home where Lila was living with friends. He almost certainly did die by suicide, though enough questions surrounded the handling of the case and the sketchy behavior of witnesses to get the newspapers into a flurry. Lila's name was forever tainted by the mysterious incident. It's a frustrating conclusion. However, it is undeniable that Wampus was correct to put her on their list. Mary Philbin Mary's story begins back in Chicago, where she and her parents were family friends of Joseph Lemley's family. Joe's brother Carl Lemley was the co-founder of Universal Pictures, and he pulled some strings to get her noticed by the studio after she came second place in a beauty contest that they hosted. In 1921, when she was around 19 years old, she moved to Hollywood with both her parents and signed with Universal. Being a wampus baby star made total sense, and in that first year, in 1922, she worked steadily. In 1923, she appeared in the troubled production Merrily We Go Around, which began under the direction of Eric von Stroheim, but after a series of disputes, delays, and mishaps, he was unceremoniously replaced. Still, the film was a high-profile one, and Mary was now undeniably a star. Merrily We Go Around also brought an important person into her life. Universal's young head of European publicity, Paul Koner. Paul and Mary fell deeply in love, though because he was Jewish and she was Catholic, they kept their relationship quiet at first. Throughout 1923 and 24, her name became big enough, often with the moniker The Merry-Go-Round Girl, to carry a number of romantic dramas. Then came one of the most notable films of the decade, the Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. The production of The Phantom of the Opera was even more troubled than her last troubled production. Budgets were out of control. Rewrites and reshoots were constant. Lon Chaney battled it out with director Rupert Julian and co-star Norman Carey, who hated each other too. And all three men were absolute shits to Mary Philman. The director was constantly putting his hands on her to adjust her costumes, so much so that his wife had to intervene. Norman Carey tried to touch her without her consent while filming scenes. He's what one might call a grab-ass today. And Lon Chaney, who was the creative force behind the film, would hurl abuse at her in order to elicit better acting. 
Given her taxing, proudly traumatic experience filming Phantom of the Opera, it stands to reason that Mary started wondering if Hollywood was the place for her after all. In 1926, she and Paul Kohner got engaged, but her parents were appalled. They disapproved of her marrying a Jewish man and forced her to break it off or be disowned. She chose her family, but she and Paul were both devastated. Towards the end of the 1920s, she was still working, but something wasn't landing with Mary's career. Unlike, say, Lila Lee, Bessie Love, or Colleen Moore, Mary Philbin did not use the Wampus Baby Stars list or really any other moment, to debut a more adult persona. Devoted to her parents, she made being a good girl the crux of her public image. She was referred to in Photoplay in 1929 as a strangely unrebellious little person. And in Picture Play the following year, they wrote, We have been told more than once that Mary is so innocent and childlike that she doesn't really know what life is all about. These publications were giving Mary's image some serious side-eye, because they knew she was a grown-ass woman. Mary had started shaving a couple of years off her age by this point, and held on to her little girl Mary Pickford-style curls for far longer than her peers. But again, she was a wampus baby star back in 1922. It was now 1930. They also knew she had been engaged, so this infantilizing image rang hollow. This was a problem from a marketing standpoint. She was out of step with the zeitgeist. Mary wasn't a flapper or a bright young thing, or a sophisticated lady of the world. She was, in the simplest terms possible, not cool enough for the era. Mary made her final film in 1929 and cared for her parents full-time until their deaths. Mary and Paul never forgot about each other, and though he eventually married, they both kept their love letters to each other for the rest of their lives. I'll break the melancholy mood to say that Wampus technically did get this one right for a spell, but I don't think that Mary was right for Hollywood, nor was Hollywood right for Mary. Pauline Stark. In Stark, sorry, contrast to, say, Mary Philman, Pauline Stark never looked childlike in the sweet and delicate way that was popular on screen at the time. Born around 1900 or 1901, she made her debut all the way back in 1916, working for D.W. Griffith, and was quickly branded as something of an ugly duckling. They said she had a snub nose and too many freckles, among other criticisms that probably made her feel like shit. As she got a smidge older, but still impossibly young, attempts were made to sell the public on her attractiveness. That sounds like I'm saying there was anything at all wrong with how she looked. There wasn't. People often think I'm way off with my comparisons, but I think she had a Glenn Close look about her. Quite elegant. But maybe a Glenn Close is the wrong look for a teenage girl? A anyway... The point is that by 1919, Photoplay was declaring that she was no longer an ugly duckling, but a beautiful swan, while at the same time still saying that her nose was snubby. Some coverage implies that she's too thin. Others claim that her athletic figure comes from a jiu-jitsu hobby, which, if that's true, that's very cool. 
Most of the reviews of Pauline's work from this period are very complimentary and stress that she is a serious talent. Strange contradictory commentary about her looks arises again and again, however. An entire motion picture classic article from 1920 is dedicated to telling the readers how youthful she looks, with photos proving the opposite. A review of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court from 1921 says, Pauline Stark is an attractive heroine, except in two close-ups. And while that screams, man with an unwashed ass has an opinion, it demonstrates that when the Wampus chose Pauline Stark the following year, they chose someone with plenty of career momentum and experience, but who was something of an underdog. There isn't a big contrast in her roles in the years following the Wampus list. She bops around mostly in dramas where her work is highlighted for being very good, but sad. Some leaning lady parts, but ever on the cusp of stardom. Then in 1925 comes the most damning bit of publicity I think I've ever seen, a photoplay article called The Girl Without It. Weirdly, I thought the it factor as a concept was not coined until 1927 by Eleanor Glynn, but Joe Kelly from Photoplay was using it in a very similar way two years earlier, and actually I have found Glynn using it pre-1927 too. Anyway, the article talks a great deal about her talent, and a great deal more about her total and utter lack of sex appeal. And though the author seems to be wringing his hands as if to say, Oh, why can't everyone just love her for her talent? It is done with the melancholy sense that, of course, no one will. Instead of letting Pauline lean in and, you know, declare that it doesn't matter if she's not hot, it matters that she can act, the fan magazine, under direction from the studios and the press agents, continue to try and sell the concept of Pauline's beauty. Pauline Stark has the beauty of which the old masters dreamed, says Screenland in 1926. Drinking goat's milk changed her looks, claimed Photoplay. Actually, she does have it, according to Eleanor Glynn. If this is at all familiar to you, it's because nothing has really changed. Anyway... Truly, it was as if no one could figure out how to market Pauline without the sex appeal factor, and eventually, they stopped trying. She still appeared in films, including some sound pictures, steadily until 1930, but they weren't prestige films worthy of what she had to offer. After a mental health crisis in 1931, she mostly retired to spend the rest of her days with her second husband. The final Wampa's verdict? This was a miss. The following is a real ad from Motion Picture Magazine, 1922. Your figure only has charm as you are fully developed. Beauty of form can be cultivated just the same as flowers are made to blossom with the proper care. Woman by nature refined and delicate, craves the natural beauty of her sex. How wonderful to be a perfect woman! Bust pads and ruffles never look natural or feel right. 
They are really harmful and stop development. You should add to your physical beauty by enlarging your bust form to its natural size. This is easy to accomplish with The National, a new scientific appliance that brings delightful results. Free Beauty Book If you wish a beautiful womanly figure, write for a copy of the treatise by Dr. C.S. Carr, formerly published in the Physical Culture magazine, entitled The Bust, How It May Be Developed. Of this clear method, Dr. Carr states, Indeed, it will bring about a development of the busts quite astonishing. This valuable information, explaining the causes of non-development, together with photographic proof showing as much as five inches enlargement by this method, will be sent free to every woman who writes quickly. Those desiring books sent sealed enclose four-cent postage. The Olive Company, Department 205, Clarinda, Iowa. The Old Movie Lady Note. That seems like a great way to get pictures of boobs in the mail. Patsy Ruth Miller In the August 1923 edition of Screenland Magazine, they reported that Patsy Ruth Miller's weekly salary had increased from $200 the year before to $1,250. While not the $2,200 weekly that they cited Lon Chaney, her co-star in that year's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, was getting, it was a leap forward and indicative of her worth to the studio. Back in 1922, when she was named a Wampus Baby Star, Patsy Ruth only had four credited roles to her name. She was 18 and had been discovered a little over a year earlier by the enigmatic Alla Nazimova. Nazimova is the stuff of early Hollywood legend. A mysterious and vampy bisexual, she began her career in the theater, was a prolific writer, and had her own production studio. Nazimova was rumored to host quite debaucherous parties at her home, the Garden of Alla. For a teenager from Missouri like Patsy Ruth, it must have been overwhelming, but thrilling. It was Nazimova who got Patsy Ruth her first big break, a supporting role in Camille, 1921. The other marquee name of the picture, along with Nazimova herself, was the era's biggest sex symbol, Rudolph Valentino. In many ways, one can see how Patsy Ruth perfectly supports the Wampus qualifications list as a predictor for success. She was well under 25. She had just signed with Goldwyn. She had just enough credits, with big names, too. And while she was not yet a star by anyone's imagination, the current was taking her there fast. Post Wampus list, she added six more credits to 1922. Then 1923 hit, and so did capital S stardom with Universal Studios' Super Jewel and their most successful silent film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. As Esmeralda, Patsy Ruth Miller cemented herself in film history and as a major celebrity. Over the next decade, she made nearly 70 more films across all different genres. She had high-profile engagements, she graced magazine covers, she married director Tay Garnett, she lived the Hollywood dream. And then, before her 30th birthday, she retired from the screen. Poof! Heading out on a high, Patsy had other plans that didn't include the silver screen. 
perhaps influenced by the creativity of her old mentor, Alan Asimova, or just her innate talent, Patsy Ruth Miller went on to have a remarkable literary career. She wrote radio scripts, screenplays, a novel, and short stories. She even won three O. Henry Literary Awards, and in 1988 released an autobiography called My Hollywood, When Both of Us Were Young. The Wampas definitely got this one right. Claire Windsor The first thing I need you to know about Claire Windsor is that her birth name was Clara Viola Cronk, though her family called her Ola. I won't dwell on it, just know that I love it. As Ola Cronk, she had a whole other life. Yes, it is the eventual Claire Windsor who takes the prize as the oldest Wampus Baby star of 1922, as she was born on April 19, 1892, making her just a few weeks shy of her 30th birthday when the Wampus Baby Star list was announced. In 1914, as a 22-year-old who had done some stage work but was otherwise just a businessman's daughter, Claire, then Ola, married David Willis Bowes in a rather scandalous elopement that was kept secret at first from their disapproving families. Two years later, they had a baby, a little boy, Davis Willis Jr., who his mother called Billy. To the best of my knowledge, this means that Claire Windsor was the only Wampus baby of 1922 to have a baby of her own when the list was released. But of course I'm getting ahead of myself. The marriage fell apart sometime after Billy's birth, and Claire moved with her parents and sister to Los Angeles, where, just as a means to support herself and her son, she took on extra work. It was in 1920 that she met Lois Weber, and everything changed, including her name. I spoke about Weber in episode 1, but her star-making prowess was used even more directly here than for fellow baby star Lois Wilson. By this point, Weber was the first American woman to run her own film production studio, Lois Weber Productions, which she founded in 1917. Claire Windsor became one of her favorite actors to work with, and some could argue served as her muse. Over the next two years, Claire appeared in five Lois Weber Productions. Weber and the rest of Claire's team amped up her publicity, which corresponds with her being named a baby star. What really stands out about Claire is her total commitment to playing the publicity game. While some of her peers struggled to make an impact in the fan magazines, or only found their names in gossip columns with a heavy dose of side-eye, or refused to cooperate with the publicity departments at all, Claire knew how to play ball. She knew that beyond her acting, and there were great debates over whether or not the woman could act, and beyond even her beauty, which basically everyone at the time agreed was second to none, she knew that her career was dependent on the fans' desires to see her films. The Wampus were the friends that she needed to make that happen. There's a great piece in Screenland, August 1923, all about the power of press agents, written by an anonymous Wampus member, that reads in part, Helen Chadwick mentioned in her suit against the Goldwyn Company that she didn't get as much publicity as the other stars, especially Claire Windsor. Helen is a good actress, but she's darn hard to publicize. In fact, she snubs the publicity department. He goes on to say, 
Claire Windsor is always charming when we ask her to pose. No matter how tired she may be, she will cheerfully change half a dozen frocks in order to give us new fashion pictures. On Sundays, our photographer may go to her home and shoot pictures of herself and her little boy. She helps us think up new stories about herself which may interest the public. She has sense enough to know her cooperation helps with her own advancement in her work. Three things to note. Number one, my wampus man voice is excellent. Number two, the message is clear. There is a direct correlation between lots of positive publicity and the talent's willingness to play ball. And number three, yes, Claire definitely did allow the use of her son Billy quite often in that positive publicity. From a moral standpoint, I'm uncomfortable with it. From a public relations standpoint, parading Billy around was a fascinating move. To be a divorced single mother in the 1920s, even a Hollywood one, was something that would have raised a lot of eyebrows with the conservative audiences of the time. This was a time period where other stars were hiding previous marriages, where some of Claire's contemporaries were still dressing like little girls and never giving away an inkling of maturity, let alone motherhood. And yet here was Claire gracefully and proudly showing off her child. Billy was adorable. He had a little Lord Fauntleroy haircut and wardrobe, and seemed generally game to play with his mother on set, appearing with her in some of her films. Billy was the center of his mother's world, as evidenced by a scrapbook that she kept, which was donated by the Windsor family to the Cocker City Museum. In it, she had painstakingly compiled all of the press clippings and fan magazine entries, and there were a lot that featured Billy as a little boy. Before donating it, she was always kept by her bedside table. Claire undoubtedly felt some guilt about this career of hers taking her away from her son so often, especially since she only began acting for Billy's benefit rather than any particular dream of stardom. But wherever her dreams truly lay, she was a very busy performer. Her elegant, patrician beauty kept her working steadily, Though, as I mentioned, lots of people didn't give a lot of credit to her actual acting talent. Regardless, audiences were drawn to her. If not enough to make her into one of the stars at the very top, certainly enough to keep the paychecks coming in. The other element of her life of great interest to filmmakers was her romantic life. There were early rumors of her romance with Charlie Chaplin, but since she wasn't a teenager, we know that those rumors weren't true. Then there was a well-publicized romance and two-year marriage to her co-star, Burt Lytell. When I was talking about Lois Wilson in episode one, I noted that there was a great deal of attention paid to her age, or paid to not paying attention to it. But this really wasn't the case for Claire until after her divorce from Lytell, when she had a heavily publicized affair with Charles Buddy Rogers. You might recognize his name not just for his acting, but also for being Mary Pickford's final husband. Rogers liked older women. There's simply no question about that, or problem with it. But the gossip rags at the time of his relationship with Claire Windsor were obsessed with their age difference. 
He was about 12 years her junior. Incidentally, Mary Pickford and Claire were the same age. Anyway, there's a very mean-spirited but funny piece in motion picture classic from 1928 called Robbing the Cradle that clutches its pearls over these older women stealing all the young men from their rightful, youthful dates. It didn't go anywhere, but it also didn't negatively affect Claire's careers. The talkies did that. She made a few, but like so many others of the age, she was unable to transition smoothly into the new era of filmmaking. Ever pragmatic, Claire spent the rest of her life investing in real estate and honing her real passion, which was art. The Wampas, for their part, were sufficiently correct about their close friend, Claire Windsor. Louise Lorraine Louise is probably the Wampus baby star most lost to the annals of time, which is kind of funny considering her exciting, albeit brief, career. Before she was named a star of tomorrow at age, well, somewhere between 18 and 21, she was already making a splash in action movies, specifically silent serialized shorts. In the simplest terms, these were not much different to TV shows, but played before the main feature film. Louise's first was called Elmo the Fearless in 1920, which in 18 installments had moviegoers coming back to the theater week after week to find out what happened. A sampling of episode titles from that serial include Battle Under the Sea, The Assassin's Knife, The Temple of the Dragon, and The House of Intrigue. It was all very exciting stuff. And Louise was a big part of that excitement. This five-foot-one wisp of a woman apparently did all of her own stunts, even the dangerous ones. She reportedly broke two ribs during a stunt. That report was to Picture Goer magazine and may well have been made up, but the point is, is that she was a believably thrill-seeking performer. After being dubbed the to-be-continued girl for starring in so many serials, like 11 different ones, Louise really wanted to be a feature film star. Post-Wampas, she was able to eventually take leading lady roles, mostly in full-length westerns, often with her then-husband Art Accord, but not major pictures. She was ready to leave Hollywood by 1930, having married again and becoming a mother. So Wampas wasn't spot on. But like, what a cool thing she could brag about to her grandchildren. Speaking of grandchildren, I wonder if any of the Wampus members ever told theirs the story of how they saw out the year of 1922. In December, apparently as a means of strengthening Hollywood's relationship with Mexican theater owners, 40 members of Wampas traveled to Tijuana. I can't stress to you enough just how young and silly the Wampas truly were. Yes, they were a professional organization, but this was really more like a frat house on spring break. They got very, very drunk. They gambled. They impressed themselves by not accidentally leaving any Wampas behind in Mexico upon their return. And then... They started working on next year's list. 
Join me and the Wampus Babies of 1923 next week. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe as you see fit. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.